Now, some of you may remember as we talk about the Apostle Paul in this second missionary journey of his that includes the city of Thessalonica, you may remember as we read through Acts chapter 17, a piece of that, that when Paul goes to Thessalonica, he goes and he spends maybe just a few weeks there as a matter of fact. The Thessalonian church receives the Word of God enthusiastically, but suddenly opposition arises, and it's not very long before Paul and his entire team of missionaries gets thrust out of Thessalonica. The the opposition grows so severe that the church remains, Paul and his team leaves, and a little bit later on, Silas and Timothy get to make their way back to the city of Thessalonica. But as Paul and his team leave, we recognize in the text, as Paul writes it to us, we begin to see that the church that was left goes through significant, if not severe, persecution for their faith. They go through persecution because they become Christians, and then we also learn in this passage of Scripture that they are subjected to a smear campaign against Paul and against the gospel. He really wasn't who he said he was. The message that he brought to you, the gospel, really isn't what he said it was. So the Thessalonian Christians, these brand new Christians, they go through opposition because they follow Jesus Christ. And if you remember the opposition that the, uh, the Thessalonians brought against them against, with the uh, city elders, the city leaders, they said these Christians, they're bad news because they follow a different king other than Caesar. Wouldn't that be magnificent if that's how people got grumpy with us? These Christians, they do things so differently, they follow a different king. So they endure persecution for becoming Christians. They were told, we're going to discover, that the messenger who brought the gospel was no good. He was really no different than any other traveling teacher that had come in and out of the city. And then they're told that the message itself, the gospel that they heard, was really no different than any other philosophy or any other religion peddled by any other two-bit traveling teacher. So much of what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is to reinforce with the Thessalonians what they know about him. You remember how I and Timothy and Silas, how we lived among you. You remember how the gospel that we preached had its powerful and profound effect upon you. So much of what Paul has to say is this defense of the ministry and life that they lived and then of the gospel itself most primarily. So that's really at the very core of what we're dealing with this morning in this passage of Scripture, is that the gospel is just different than everything else. It's different than everything else that they had heard, everything else they had believed before, any other traveling teacher that had come through. And on top of that, and this to me is fascinating, it's convicting in its own way. The messengers who brought the gospel were different than all of them as well. So the message itself and those who bring the message are different. So we see this in this passage of Scripture. First of all, the gospel comes in power. The gospel comes in power. And as the gospel comes with this power, we discover that the messengers come in truth, purity, integrity, and even in sacrifice. And we're going to get to unpack that this morning. Now, we keep using this word gospel. The gospel was brand new to the Thessalonians. What is the gospel? What do we mean by this? So we're going to get to talk about that as well. So the gospel comes in power. 
And then we're going to see that Paul is thrilled by this fact that the Thessalonians received the gospel as the Word of God. They didn't receive it just as something that Paul or Timothy or Silas or anyone else had to say, but it is, in fact, God's Word to us. The gospel is a divine invasion into the human condition. It is God speaking to us, working toward us and for us, not us designing or crafting a gospel. And we're going to discover that to receive the gospel is life, and to reject it means that death is at work within us. So let's begin reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's read through the first eight verses. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you became very dear to us. So Paul in chapter 1 expresses his thanksgiving to God for what's been going on in the Thessalonian church. He left under persecution and opposition. Silas and Timothy come back with good news about how the church is held under the gospel. So he's thankful for that. He's excited about that. But he hears there then also that there's this opposition to himself and the gospel. So he begins to talk this through. And, and he begins by telling the Thessalonians, you know, you remember that when we came to you, it was not in vain. It's not, it wasn't futile. It wasn't a waste of time. Our time with you was not a failure, and it most certainly was not. In fact, it was so successful that Paul throughout this book is just so expressive of his thanksgiving for the Thessalonians and the power of the Holy Spirit at work among them. This young church has been established, and it became so in love with the gospel and so, if you will, mature so quickly that they endured all of this persecution to separate them from the gospel. God had done His work. The Spirit of God had saved them and secured them. Twice in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul mentions how thankful he was that the Holy Spirit had come with power in their lives. Things were really and radically changing inside of the lives of the Thessalonians. And so now what's happening to them is exactly one of the kinds of the things that the enemy likes to do when the Spirit is powerfully at work among his people. These persecutors, they show up and they become the tool of their enemy and they try to separate the Thessalonians from the gospel. They try to separate them from the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of their lives. And guys, this is exactly the way the enemy works when the Holy Spirit is really at work within us. 
things will arise to tempt us to pull away from what God is doing with the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what these persecutors are doing. Oh, Paul was no good. The gospel was no good. His time with you, eh, you remember it incorrectly. It was bad news, not good news. So as Paul begins to think this through with the Thessalonians, the first thing that he really does is he begins to draw a link, and he draws a link that sort of walks through his time in this second missionary journey. It began in the city of Philippi. So the first thing he tells the Thessalonians is this. Now, you know that we, when we were in Philippi, we endured much opposition. Now, Paul and his missionary team uh, went to Philippi, and a church got established there. And it sounds like another very healthy, strong church. But because of his witness to Jesus Christ and the power that came with it, he gets thrown into jail, and Paul and Silas are thrown into jail, and they sing hymns to God, and the jail doors are open. In the process of them being divinely released from jail, the warden and his entire household are saved. I mean, it's just beautiful stuff that happens even through their persecution. But Paul draws a link with the Thessalonians. He says, now, you know, when we were in Philippi, we suffered opposition. And then when we came to you, we came proclaiming the gospel of God in courage. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, you know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We endured conflict when we proclaimed the gospel. We got out, we went to the next city, you know what we did? We proclaimed the gospel with courage. Even though this conflict was following us, and then we showed up here, and there's conflict here, but we proclaim with courage the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now they see that conflict in Thessalonica as well. I want to spend a lot of our time this morning as we listen to what Paul has to say about what happens between him and the Thessalonians. He keeps talking about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So I want to spend time talking about what the gospel is and how the gospel comes and what kind of effect the gospel has in the lives of those who receive it. And this is actually the first thing that we see about the gospel. And it's something we don't always think about when we think about the good news of Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection, our forgiveness, His salvation, our justification, our eternity with Him. The first link that the Apostle Paul draws is that the gospel comes with conflict. The gospel just comes with with conflict. It's in its very nature. Now, let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. First of all, the founder of the gospel suffered, died, and rose again. The gospel it, itself is secured through the cross and the empty tomb. We receive the good news that we get through the life of Jesus Christ because of his suffering upon the cross his death and his resurrection again. The gospel comes with conflict. Secondly, friends, we discover this in the New Testament, in fact, over and over again. The followers of the founder of the gospel, disciples of Jesus Christ, are intended to do violence to sin and an old way of life. So it does conflict within us, as a matter of fact. There are passages in the New Testament that tell you and me, followers of Jesus Christ, to put to death an old way of life and to put on something that is brand new. So the gospel actually comes with this kind of violence inside of our lives as it does violence to sin. 
And then, friends, this thought about the gospel in conflict, the gospel offends sin, and it frustrates those who want to live in sin. So the gospel convicts us of sin. And if we respond to that conviction properly, what we receive is forgiveness and freedom and sanctification in the life of Christ. If we reject that conviction, we live in frustration because the gospel comes with this kind of power in our lives. Again, several times in the New Testament, Scripture tells us that the gospel itself, the life of Jesus, is a stumbling stone. It is a rock of offense is how the New Testament and even parts of the Old put it. It's a stumbling stone to those who are perishing. So we see the gospel comes with conflict, but it's the kind of conflict that fixes things. It's the kind of conflict that is necessary to win a war. That's the kind of conflict the gospel comes with. And he's going to tell the Thessalonians, you received it well, and now it has become life to you. There are others who have refused it, and it is death to them. So this is how the gospel starts to come. So we're talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? What do we mean by that? He keeps using this word. Pastor Phil keeps using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? What does the gospel mean? Well, the gospel, the word itself, comes from the Greek evangel or evangelikon, and it means good news. To evangelize is to speak good news to other people about Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, if you sort of pay attention to how the word is used and the phrases that are used, we'll see stuff like this. At least twice in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul calls it the gospel of God, the good news of God. We get often the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then this beautiful phrase, the gospel of the glory of Christ. The good news, the greatness, and the power, and the majesty of Jesus Christ and all that He is. So the New Testament uses this word in these magnificent ways for us. If I were to give you what I believe to be the simplest, most straightforward, nutshell definition of what the gospel is, this is going to sound simple, but it is. (laughs) The gospel is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is born into human form, and He lives the sinless life. He dies on the cross. He rises again from the grave, and He ascends into heaven, and He freely offers you and me forgiveness of our sins. He freely offers us His grace, the only kind of grace that God can give. And He freely calls us to and empowers us to live the life that God gives us to live here on earth. The gospel is full of this kind of good news. If you want to expand on this definition, if you will, that the gospel is Jesus Christ, I like the way Dallas Willard puts it. He says the gospel is you can trust Jesus. Instead of trusting some other way of life, Instead of trusting a set of circumstances, possible outcomes, instead of trusting a political organization, instead of trusting all of these things for my protection, my provision, my salvation, my eternity, my happiness, instead of all of that, you can trust Jesus. So we talk about the gospel. 
I was reminded of this magnificent little verse in 1 Peter chapter 3. As we just going to continue to build our idea of what the gospel is. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The gospel brings sinners to God. That's beautiful, people. All of the forgiveness, all of the salvation, all of the healing, all of the transformation, all of the sanctification, all of the justification, all of this is done to bring me a sinner to God. And it's done, and the Apostle Paul actually teases this out a little bit for us in this passage. This is done that I may be completely happy in Him and that He may be glorified in me. This is the gospel. Jesus does this to bring me to God so that I may be happy in Him and He may be glorified in me. The Thessalonians are enduring suffering and persecution for what they believe. They're enduring the smear campaign on Paul and Silas and Timothy and the gospel, and they're hanging on to it because they have become happy in Jesus Christ. They're being tempted to be pulled away from that, but they refuse to be pulled away from that. And then what is Paul thankful for? We're going to read it again in chapter 2. We read it in chapter 1. I am so thankful that the news that I received is that God is at work within you. So much so that when I go to other people, they tell me your story. I don't have to tell them your story. Isn't that beautiful? They become happy in Him. And God is glorified through them. So friends, if Paul is captured by this, of course, courage will follow. If the Thessalonians are captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course their steadfastness and their courage will follow. And guys, if we, if we are captured by the gospel, courage will follow. Fruitfulness will follow as we watch it happening among the Thessalonian Christians. The gospel comes in its power and in its fruitfulness. And as Paul continues, he's showing us that Those who bring the gospel, the messengers of the gospel, they come in truth, in purity, in integrity, and sacrifice. Notice what he says in verse 3 again. For our appeal does not spring from error. The gospel comes in truth. Guys, the truth of the story of Jesus Christ is foundational to Paul, the church, in our salvation. And what we mean by the truth of the gospel is this. It really happened. It corresponds with reality. As the gospels tell us the story of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know what? It really happened. And it really has meaning for every single human being. The truth of it. It didn't spring from error. We're not making stuff up. We're not falsifying things to make it sound better to you. We're speaking the truth to you about Jesus Christ. I find this so important because in our day and age, in so many different ways, Christians are tempted to drop the truth claim of the gospel and to reduce it to some kind of psychological band-aid. It's just some form of a crutch. Friends, my faith is not a crutch. My faith is my connection to reality itself. Drop it to turn it into some kind of psychological band-aid or a spiritual truth as opposed to a true truth. That silly little phrase, I'm Spiritual but not religious just means I'm making stuff up as I go. That's what it means. 
Another phrase that's become so popular even in Christian theological circles in the last 20 years is, well, the gospel is our story. It's just our story. And we want to invite you to become a part of our story, but maybe you have another story that is significant to you and important to you as well. That may feel like a good compromise to some, but the second we give up the truth claim of the gospel, we give up the whole game. It's gone. If the story isn't actually true, then why believe this story instead of another? After all, this story tells me to take up my cross and follow him, deny myself. Why would I believe that if it weren't true? Why would I believe this instead of some other religious tradition or one that I just make up myself? When Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection, the truth and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he tells them this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, Christ has been raised and your faith is useful, it's powerful, and you've been saved from your sins. So we, like Paul, cannot fudge on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We drop its truth, we drop its fruitfulness and its power in the lives of people. So the gospel comes in truth, and the gospel comes in purity. I like this language. For our appeal in verse 3 again does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The language in the Greek there is loaded with moral overtones. We sort of feel that in the English, but in the Greek it's much more clear. These are moral things. He said, we came to you not in immoral or impure motives, but we came to you as cleanly and as purely of heart and mind as we possibly could. He says a little bit later on, it doesn't come with an attempt at flattery or deception with you people. We did not come to get rich on you and then leave in the middle of the night like so many other of these traveling teachers have done. It comes in purity. Now, guys, God uses sinners all the time. If God uses a human being, it's the only material he has to work with. It's a bunch of sinners. But what if we are able to say this about how we bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not as perfect people, but people who are pure in our motive. We really want you to know Jesus Christ. No strings attached from me. No bait and switch. Nothing else. I just want you to know Jesus Christ. The power that is in the gospel. So it comes in truth and in purity. And it comes in integrity as well. Integrity before people and integrity before God. Paul tells the Thessalonians, we did not come to seek glory from you or from anyone else. We didn't show up to receive your favor for ourselves so that our ministry platform might grow and more people would buy our books. (laughs) That's not why we came. They bring the gospel, Paul says, to please God. We showed up in purity of motive for you to get to know Jesus, and we speak the gospel, not to please you, but to please God. This is integrity of motive for the disciple of Jesus Christ. The gospel saves, the gospel transforms. This is all part of the package. But we are saved and we are transformed for the glory of God. And we watch this lived out 
in the life of Paul and Silas and Timothy, and over time we, watched it, we watch it lived out in the lives of these early churches like the Thessalonians. And we, as God's saved people, bear witness to the gospel to please and glorify God. In verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we, would have made, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he comes to speak the gospel to please God. This is integrity of motive. Now, when we read First and Second Thessalonians, we by and large are reading Happy Paul. He likes the Thessalonians. There are things to fix, but he loves them. He's thankful for them. His heart gets poured out over and over again. If you want to read Grumpy Paul, you should begin with a book like Galatians. He actually doesn't begin with thanks. That's probably, if I can recall, the only of the Pauline epistles that doesn't begin, I thank God. It goes, I can't believe you've messed up already. That's how the book begins. Where the Thessalonians are enduring persecution and they're hanging on to the faith, the Galatians are starting to let it go. So one of the things that Paul tells the Galatians is the same thing he tells the Thessalonians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he says this, For am I not seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I didn't show up so that you would follow me or I would find pleasure in you. You know, I, I showed up so that God would be glorified. I served God while I was among you. So if we speak the gospel or we bear the name of Christ, however it is, we bear the name of Christ in public to gain the favor of other people, we are serving them and not God. This little piece of advice is good for our spiritual health, but it turns out it's also really good for our psychological health for the health of our relationships. And here's this little piece of advice. We serve whomever we seek to please. We serve whomever we seek to please. And if our lives are wrapped up in trying to please people, you're going to die a thousand deaths and you will never be good enough. If we serve money, you will never have enough. If you serve notoriety, you will never be seen enough. If you serve academic fame, you will never be cited enough. But you serve Jesus Christ and He is more than enough. More than enough. So we're so glad that God is at work among you. But you understand we showed up to please God. So now this becomes an example to the Thessalonians. This is how I want you to live. Not to please me, Paul but to glorify God and to please Him. As we continue to work through what Paul has to say, I want to add to it verses 9 through 12 in 1 Thessalonians 2. For you remember, brothers. So he's here working against what these persecutors have been saying about Paul's time with them. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. So the gospel comes even 
with sacrifice. He told them at the end of that very first section, I believe it's verse 8, we came to you to give you the gospel, the good news, but we came ready to give you ourselves as well. Whatever we could give you that could help you get to know Jesus and grow in Him, we were ready to do. Then he says, and then you know, you remember that night and day we labored and we toiled among you so that there would be nothing between you and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they're ready to share themselves and even their work and their labor. This church had become important to Paul. Their relationship with Christ had become important to him. And so he found himself ready to sacrifice for them and their relationship with Christ. This is part of what it means to be a messenger of the gospel. What is it that maybe even I can do or give up or turn over so that someone can get to know Jesus Christ? It comes with open hands. Paul preached during one part of the day, and then he worked during another part of the day. You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We know as we piece together the life of the Apostle Paul, he had a trade. He was a tent maker. And so many places where he went and he sort of uh, set up shop and began to preach, he would begin to ply his trade, and that's how he would make some of his money. And I like the, the Greek word here for labor. You, know, you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. In the English, the word toil sounds bad. Uh, labor, what it should say is this, is you remember, brothers, how we, were, we took a beating for you and we toiled for you. That's what the word labor means. We took a beating for you. Again, it was very common in Paul's day and age for teachers of some uh, philosophy or devotees of some pagan god to come through town and set up shop and receive money and then leave. It was, it was quite common for these kinds of traveling teachers to come through town. So Paul says, you remember how different we were than they were. We showed up and we didn't do that. We didn't take your money. We did something differently so that there would be no obstacle between you and God, so that you would know the gospel is different than everything else you have been hearing. But even that, as Paul is doing that, is made possible because another church was helping him when he was in Thessalonica. And eventually we discover, as we read through Paul's epistles, the Thessalonians learn to give themselves so that other people can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now remember, Paul's missionary journey begins in the city of Philippi, these Macedonian cities, from Philippi to Thessalonica, Thessalonica to Berea, to Athens, and then to Corinth. And Corinth is where Paul is writing the letter to the Thessalonians. Later on in Paul's life, he writes a letter to the Philippian church. And listen to something that Paul tells the Philippians. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So this brand new young Philippian church, they're so enraptured by the gospel, they say, we want to do what we can to make sure the gospel spreads. So they send what they have to Paul and his missionary team to help take care of his needs. So he works, he gains money there, and the Philippian church makes that possible. Paul's in Corinth when he writes to the Thessalonians. Later on in his life again, he writes to the Corinthian church. And listen to what he says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-3. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They gave to the poor in the church in Corinth. They gave to me and my missionary team. They gave to the church out of their, they gave abundantly out of what little they had, even more than what they had, so that you could hear the gospel. So Paul shows up at Thessalonica, and he doesn't want to build that financial barrier between him and these brand new Christians, but we discover very quickly that it's part of our maturity and growth in the gospel of Jesus Christ to give financially for the advancement of the gospel. We worship God with our pocketbooks. We encourage the movement of the gospel. We take what we have received by God's grace, and we do what we can to make sure others hear the same thing. Isn't that incredible? We watch in his letters the maturity and the growth of these churches as they grow in the joy of the gospel, even in affliction, and they give so that the gospel can spread to others. Paul, as he writes this, you may have seen these images. He sees himself as both a mother and a father to this church. This is very personal. We get some of this of Paul in the other letters from time to time, but maybe the the, the greatest volume of Paul's personal connection to a church comes out in 1 Thessalonians especially. In verse 7, he says, we were like a nursing mother among you. In verse 11, he says, we were like a father with his children as we were teaching you to walk in the gospel of Christ. And I like that because the parenting image is apt. It's right because they were teaching them to walk in a brand new way of life. They've been born as brand new children of God and so now as mother and father, they nurture them and teach them to walk in newness of life. This passage is full of the pastor's heart. It's full of the minister's heart. To know that their congregation is maturing in Christ, growing closer to Him, and more and more like Him all the time. I'm going to give you guys a piece of advice. Chances are, before you die or the Lord comes, some of you might end up moved at another church someplace else. You get sick and and tired of of hearing Pastor Phil, you want to go hear somebody else. Who knows what's going to happen? Find a pastor whose heart is like this. Because it just happens. There are pastors whose hearts are the opposite of what the the Apostle Paul is saying our heart was. We weren't seeking glory from you. We weren't looking to get wealthy off of you. We did everything we could to make sure that you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the pastor. Teaching each other to walk in newness of life. As he says, God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God is calling us into this way of life and into his very own glory. I want to wrap up this set of thoughts beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this, And we also thank God constantly for this. So he's back to where we were in chapter 1. 
And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work within you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God of Jesus Christ that are in Judea. These are the first group of churches in Jerusalem and Antioch and Samaria and so forth, the first group of people to become Christians and build churches. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Paul just sort of opens himself up to the Thessalonians here. Those who have opposed the gospel, it's death to them. And notice the last verse that we we read there, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. If you compare that to the last verse of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, but Jesus saves his children from the wrath to come. You receive the gospel and it is life. You reject the gospel and it is death. So he's excited. He's thankful. He's constantly thankful that Thessalonians receive the gospel for what it really is, the word of God. And then he talks about these others who have rejected Christ, the gospel, and they have found death. And he mentions their rejection is no simple apathy. It's, in fact, violent opposition from the prophets to Jesus Christ himself to now trying to press the church out. In fact, the Apostle Paul was part of that first wave of persecution to get rid of Christians as many as he possibly could and throw them into prison. And so we recognize again that the gospel itself comes with conflict. And the children of God endure some of the same conflict that their God endured and that other Christians endured. But there's conflict and there's courage always. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the Apostle Peter tells, uh, puts it like this to another church. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. It's not strange. Other brothers and sisters in Christ endure, friends, so much more than we do. But they will not let go of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ Himself establishes the good news of the gospel through His suffering and death upon the cross. But the Thessalonians, they received it for what it really is. The gospel is the divine invasion into our human condition. This is not what Paul has to say. This is not what Peter has to say. Peter, in fact, tells people in that same letter, we didn't come to you with cunningly devised fables. This is the Word of God. This is the work of God for us, to us, among us. It is the divine invasion into our human condition. Friends, the free offer of forgiveness given to sinners by a holy and righteous God. The free offer of grace that we receive by our faith in Him, our trust in Jesus Christ. 
the free offer of the power for transformed living and the healing of the human condition through Jesus Christ. The call that God makes that I don't deserve to receive, that I don't deserve to hear, but God calls me into His kingdom and into His glory. And all of this news of the Gospel is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. That Christ gives His life for ours that we might live. That we might walk in newness of life, becoming happy in Him so that He may be glorified in us. Let's pray.